When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. is meant to be a substitute for mental health treatment. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Hello, and welcome to Psychologically Minded. My name is Grace Fowler, and today we are talking about A Christmas Carol. Um, so yeah, this episode I wanted to do on the Charles Dickens uh, tale of Christmas Carol and kind of talk about some of the adaptations and... Uh, like the symbolism within the story and kind of like the messaging behind it. Um, But to be honest, when I was planning this episode, I was like, oh, it'll come out on Christmas Eve, so I could do, you know, something, some sort of Christmas movie. Um, And as I was looking at Christmas movies, I was like, oh, I've seen as a child probably like three or four different adaptations of A Christmas Carol. Um, But I have, I had never like really read the original or... It's been a while since I've, like, encountered the original story, like, as a as a book and not just as, like, a movie or TV adaptation. Um, and so I, I was like, oh, this will be an interesting one to do. And there's, like, obviously a lot of symbolism, a lot of personal growth in the story. Um, so, you know, it'll be interesting to talk about from a psychological perspective. But what I didn't realize is when I started reading into it is how much that A Christmas Carol is actually a ghost story, um, and a political story, (laughs) um, and that Charles Dickens, like, actually had a, a, quite a tradition of using Christmas stories or, or stuff that was published around Christmas time to make his, like, values and political ideals known, um, so I, I was like, oh, this adds an even more interesting kind of note to, to this tale. Um, additionally, I kind of got into a YouTube hole of, (laughs) different adaptations of A Christmas Carol, which all started with the trailer for the 2009 Disney version starring Jim Carrey as most of the characters. Um, Jim Carrey and Gary Oldman played like 75% of the characters in this, and it's the motion capture technology that they used to make the Polar Express, because it's the same director who did Polar Express. Um, And I highly recommend watching um, there's a video on YouTube, which is the first, like, 15 minutes of the movie, but the motion capture footage, not the animated footage, so it's just Jim Carrey and Gary Oldman in these, like, horrible get-ups with cameras stuck to their faces, doing not super great accents. <laughs> um, it's, it's really, really funny. Um, and, you know, I, I got into, I, I was watching it. And I was, like, looking up more information about this version, because originally I was just going to watch the Christmas Carol, the Disney movie, um, which seems like it's not good. It also lost, like, $50 million um, when they, uh, after it it came out. It it didn't do super well, didn't regain all of its um, money. Um, So that became too much, right, for me to watch this movie, and and it was really difficult just getting through, like, the trailer. Um, it's, It's really an uncanny valley situation, and I apologize if you like that version of The Christmas Carol, but I was really struggling with the animation and <laughs> the fact that Jim Carrey plays most of the characters. He's like, he's Scrooge and all of the ghosts, so what are we supposed to do with that? <laughs> I feel like that doesn't work if the same actor is playing all of the characters, but I digress. So anyway, I'm going to talk about the original version, the Charles Dickens um, book version or novella version, um, and kind of the history behind it. So to dive in, this is one of the most popular works um, that ever ever written, and one of Dickens' most popular works. Um, in around 1849, he would do public readings of the story, so he was actually the first person to like perform a Christmas Carol, and he would read the the story like in a in a public space. And the reason he started doing that was because the book, it had been so popular that there was pressure on him to publish, like, Christmas content, essentially, every year, and 
1849, he, he just wasn't, it wasn't possible for him to write something for it to be available, so he said, oh, what if I just read A Christmas Carol, so that people still, like, get to, like, engage with my work around Christmas time, and it was so incredibly popular that he publicly read the story 127 times until he died, until 1870 when he died. Um, the book itself has never gone out of print, I believe, in the original printing, there, there's been 13 editions of it, um, and it's been translated into multiple languages, and it's been adapted into, like, like I said, TV and movies, but also into, like, theater performances, opera shows, um, other books, like, it, it's just been adapted over and over and over again, just so we you know, kind of center it in this is like, it's a very, very popular work. Um, and it, I think it's so surprising how popular it is given how political it, it really is. Um, which is, which is what I really want to get into. Um, but so interestingly enough, like I said, Dickens has several Christmas works and he actually, before writing a Christmas Carol had written a, a story about a man whose name was Grub, who was a grave digger who was visited by goblins. And they, it's essentially, kind of like the precursor to this the Scrooge and ghosts story where, you know, Scrooge is visited by these ghosts to, to have a spiritual transformation. And in this story, the grave digger is visited by these goblins and, and basically told, like, you need to change your ways or you're going to die and, and like, not be loved after death. So this was, um, like, a storytelling theme that was showing up in Dickens' work before, which I think is really interesting that he he was really interested in this, like, supernatural or spiritual visitor convincing someone um, to change their ways. Um, so why why did Dickens write A Christmas Carol, right? Let's, let's, let's get into it. <laughs> um, so Dickens was becoming increasingly horrified by the economic conditions of England at the time that was producing child labor. So in the time that Dickens is, is doing a lot of his work and, and in the time that he grew up, it's the Industrial Revolution. So people are moving from the countryside into city hubs, factories are being built, and unfortunately, because we did not have, well, not we, but England, <laughs> didn't have um, labor laws, children could be forced to work in factories. And in fact, Charles Dickens was forced to work in a shoe polish factory uh, when he was about 12 years old. So uh, Charles Dickens, his father, uh, was a bit of a, a bit of a gambler, a bit of a un, unsavory character and had lost all of the family money. Um, and in merry old England in those times, and honestly in a lot of places in the world in those times, um, if you failed to pay your debts, you were sent to what was called a debtor's prison. So Charles Dickens's father was sent to debtor's prison, which meant that uh, Dickens, his mother, and his siblings no longer had any source of income, even though they probably didn't have much before because his father was not uh, investing his money wisely. Um, and so to support the family, Charles Dickens had to go work at a shoe polish factory, which sounds like just horrible. And his job was to put the labels on the bottles of the shoe polish. Um, and unfortunately he wasn't able to make enough money as a 12 year old. <laughs> um, so the rest of his family had to move into the prison with his father, which this is like so interesting that this is how we used to do prison, but basically like, especially with a debtor's prison, um, if the family that relied on the person who was incarcerated could not support themselves, they could just move into the prison with them. And so it's like, you're basically signing up to be incarcerated so that you have, you can be taken care of crazy. And maybe we'll do another episode on the prison industrial complex, but this is 1800s England. Um, so eventually his father comes into an inheritance. Someone in his family dies. He gets enough money to pay off his debts so his, he and his family can move out of the prison. However, his father did not allow Dickens to stop working at the shoe polish factory for several months after his release. So even though they have enough money that his dad was able to pay off his debts, get out of prison, Charles Dickens is still told, like, you have to work in this factory and basically be, like, separated from the family and still be supporting the family with your, like, little boy job. So, and, and I, I mentioned this because a lot of the sources that I was looking at and a lot of stuff that I was reading mentioned that this was such a, this, this appears to be, like, such a formative experience for Charles Dickens and that it, it probably influences a lot of the, the messages in A Christmas Carol, 
Um, and, a, and a lot of the attitudes that Scrooge holds at the beginning of the story about working people and the working poor um, is probably meant to mirror, like, Charles Dickens's father and his worldview um, and how, like, detrimental it was to Charles Dickens, right? As he, he, as a boy, was not allowed to live with his family and was forced to keep working even when um, his father was out of jail. So, again, there's some theories that Dickens maybe had conflicting feelings toward his father, right? One, feeling one way toward him as, you know, being a warm, giving, like a, a father figure, and the other being like a cold, withholding person or father who, who, you know, doesn't allow you to come home, doesn't allow you to see your family, and that the, the two Scrooges, right, the Scrooge at the beginning of the story and the Scrooge at the end kind of represents those, those two um, symbolic representations of his father. So on one hand, Charles Dickens is reacting to like, this personal experience of having to endure child labor and then also seeing that there's like a lot, a lot of child labor and poor economic conditions happening in his country um, at, at the time of the writing, like the 1840s. Um, also, oh, Charles Dickens like specifically was uh, writing this to refute Thomas Malthus or, or Malthusian economics, which if you've never heard of that is a pretty controversial economic theory that basically states we do not have enough um, resources like we don't have we don't have the ability to grow enough food to feed all of the people in the world and so some people are going to go are going to starve and, and like some people will have to die and we won't be able to feed all of them um, largely not true <laughs> um, and has long been used by people to support things like genocide, war, famine, um, you know, and it is not a, it's kind of like a, a kind of defeatist excuse to be like, well, we can't take care of everyone, so we shouldn't have to take care of everyone. Um, and Dickens was like virulently opposed to this belief as well. And in fact, in some of the dialogue that Scrooge has in the beginning, um, if you're familiar with the story, he's, he talks about, um, he's asked to donate money to the poor by someone going to door to door collecting money for charity. And he says, are there not enough prisons and not enough workhouses? And if they're like, if the poor can't afford to feed themselves, then maybe they shouldn't eat. And that's like pretty much Malthusian, Malthusian economics, like in a nutshell. And so Thomas or Charles Dickens is setting up Scrooge to kind of represent this economic worldview and then going to shut it down <laughs> throughout the course of the story. Um, so that, I, I think that was so interesting because I, you know, as a child, like, never knew that. Um, but, like, Charles Dickens was, like, very specifically wanting to refute this man's points and trying to drive home to people who maybe had heard, you know, like, this economic position was, like, in the zeitgeist and he's wanting to kind of, kind of set up an opposition to it. Um, additionally, Christmas had kind of fallen off in England um, around this time. So, uh, largely because of the Puritans. So there was this big push for Christmas to become much more religious, to move away from like feasting and to move more toward like a solemn, um, like, you know, very religious, um, very, very somber, like, I don't know how to say, but basically like not a fun time, right? So that, that was like the Puritan, the Puritan push, um, until about 18, the 1830s when there was a revival of more secular Christmas traditions. So these are things like, um, Christmas trees, um, like decorating the tree, certain types of food, like, um, spiced wine, plum puddings, uh, the figgy pudding of, of old Christmas songs, um, and that actually Queen Victoria and Prince Albert were kind of responsible for bringing more secular Christmas traditions back into the zeitgeist at this time, um, because Prince Albert was from Germany, and in Germany, um, they celebrated Christmas, particularly the more, like, secular aspects, and Prince Albert wanted to have a Christmas tree in the, in the, palace or wherever the royals live um and so it was kind of like ooh, that's a little scandalous like we in england don't do the christmas tree thing because it's not a religious christmas tradition um but prince albert and queen victoria's like endorsement of it and participation in it kind of made it okay for people to do again and that was in the 1830s so as we're like ramping up to the year when christmas carol was published there's this um shift 
in the way that the culture is thinking about Christmas and, and moving back to this idea of like Christmas is a time of celebration, a time of light and warmth, and not just like solemn reflection or, or religious like remembrance. Um, and in fact, a lot of the stuff written about in A Christmas Carol, like eating plum pudding, drinking spiced wine, playing parlor games, um, a, a lot of the stuff that we see in the, the scenes from A Ghost of Christmas Present, a lot of those actually were written about in A Christmas Carol and then became traditions in England. So Charles Dickens is not only responding to the shift in his culture, but he's also kind of setting the tone for some of these more secular traditions. Um, and, and Dickens believed that Christmas should be a, a more secular holiday to be celebrated. Um, ultimately, though, like I said at the beginning, this story is a ghost story, and apparently somewhere in, in England or Europe, this used to be a tradition of you would stay up all night Christmas Eve telling ghost stories until the like dawn on Christmas morning. It was like you were like keeping yourself awake through the night by telling these ghost stories. And so that's kind of what is emulated with Scrooge, right? It's like he's kept up with, with ghost stories. Um, again, this book was like super popular. People freaking loved it. Glowing reviews. It's never gone out of print. People like the original printing, they sold out all the copies in like a week. Like people absolutely love this story. And one of the reasons why I think people love the story so much is that Dickens was able to combine the darkness of the reality he was writing about, right? The reality of child labor, of extreme poverty, of this this sense of not enough resources or not enough space for people, um, with the brightness and joy of, of Christmas, right? Like, especially this new emerging Christmas tradition of, like, Christmas trees and delicious food and, like, partying. He's combining this darkness with this lightness. And he also was making Christmas more accessible for an urban audience, right? And so, like I mentioned earlier, because of the Industrial Revolution, people had moved from the country into the city, and now we're, like, living on top of each other. They didn't have as much land as before, um, or maybe as much space. And in the past, a lot of Christmas traditions were really kind of based on you being isolated and living, like, in the country, right? They, they weren't based on, like, there being lots of people around. And so Charles Dickens was, he's doing a lot with this book, right? And it, it's, a not, it's a novella, right? So it's short. <laughs> but he's doing a lot with it. Um, and he's not only, like, kind of revitalizing some of the traditions that were coming back, but he's also making it a more um, urban experience, right? He, like, the story is about takes place in the city. Everything is in the city. People are able to celebrate within the context of the city. Um, and I think that was something that was really useful for people of, you know, just because we live in a new context doesn't mean that we can't still celebrate holidays or still do some of the traditions we want. And because we live in a new context, we can't update some of them to be more appropriate for the context that we live in. So let's break down, let's, let's just re to recap all of the things that Charles Dickens is doing with this one book. So one, he's addressing economic conditions and child uh, labor that he sees around him. He's addressing certain economic worldviews, particularly Malthusian economics, and kind of refuting this idea that there's not enough um, to go around. And maybe if we, if some people start hoarding stuff, there's enough to go around. Um, uh, addressing like Christmas traditions, trying to bring back a more secular and a more joyful approach to Christmas, um, and updating and urbanizing Christmas traditions to make more sense for people now living in uh, Industrial Revolution cities. Um, and again, it's a novella, it's short, there's only five parts to it, like basically five little chapters, and he's doing all of this in the book, and it's insanely popular! And I'm sure even if you haven't like read the original story, you've probably encountered at least some adaptation of it, whether it's like a cartoon version, The Muppet Christmas Carol, or even Scrooge, the Bill Murray movie, which is an adaptation of the Christmas Carol, um, where he plays the Scrooge character, right? This is, this story, like, permeates our pop culture, particularly around this time of year. So that's why I thought it was, like, kind of relevant for us to talk about it. So I'm just gonna go through the five parts, kind of break down the story. Um, I realize that there's some stuff in the original story that there is, uh, that's often skipped in the adaptation, so I wanted to, to kind of focus on those things and then talk about, you know, like the symbolism and kind of how could we connect it to Charles Dickens' message um, and, and what his, like, state of mind was at the time of writing it. So, without further ado, let's break down A Christmas Carol. 
The book starts um, with the intro with one of the most famous lines. Um, the sentence starts off with Marley was dead. Uh, we introduce, we get introduced to Scrooge and we learn that his business partner, Jacob Marley, has been dead for seven years. Um, oh, and Scrooge's full name is Ebenezer Scrooge. Like, just what a name. <laughs> um, we are introduced to, so we're introduced to Scrooge. We find out his business partner has been dead for seven years, but he still keeps his name on the sign above the business, um, and that's more a function of Scrooge being too cheap to buy a new sign and not necessarily, like, preserving his partner's memory. Um, we then meet Scrooge's employee, Bob Cratchit, who was, like, freezing to death in the office as Scrooge is too cheap to pay for, uh, additional fuel or coal for the, the, the wood, the stove in the office. Um, and especially in this intro, Stave, we set up a lot of things of like Scrooge does have enough money to do these things, right? Like there, he could afford to buy an extra lump of coal, or he could afford to like give a penny to the the people who come asking for charity, right? It's just that he chooses not to. He's hoarding his wealth, and if we think about this in the context of Dickens trying to refute the Malthusian idea that there aren't enough resources, Dickens is pointing out that. There are people who have so many resources and are hoarding them. And it's not that there aren't enough resources to go around. It's that a few people are sitting on top of extra resources that they can't possibly use in their lifetime. And if they were able to spend their money or share their resources or whatever, um, then there would be enough for everyone, right? So he's he's really driving home this point and shows us over and over again that Scrooge makes these choices um, to, to hoard his wealth. Um, okay, so Bob Cratchit, he's, he's shivering his little hands off. Um, if you're familiar with the Muppet version, this character's played by Kermit, uh, and Scrooge is played by Michael Caine. In the Disney one, Bob Cratchit is played by Gary Oldman, and again, Jim Carrey plays most of the other characters. <laughs> um... While they're in the office, Scrooge's nephew Fred arrives to invite his uncle to Christmas. We are shown that this happens every year, and Scrooge refuses every time. Um, and Fred is actually the son of Scrooge's sister, Fran, um, who has passed away. Um, but later on in the story, we'll realize how important his sister Fran is to him. And so maybe there's some hesitance to engage with his nephew due to this, like, grief or this sadness, um, about his sister that he hasn't fully, like, processed or realized, um, but I'll, I'll talk about that more in the past one. Um, so yeah, he's rude to his nephew, he storms home, he, it gets to his house, and this is when the ghost stuff starts. So, in the original, um, in the story, his door knocker turns into a face, he goes, when he goes up the stairs to his room, he, um, sees a hearse on the stairs, um, I think it's like a, tr it's like a train hearse, but he sees a hearse, um, and then when he gets to his room is when he sees Marley, and so I, I in the adaptations that I watched as a child, or as an adult, <laughs> um, never rem I don't think the hearse is, is used a lot, it's mostly the door, and then the, the, um, Marley appearing. So I thought that was interesting that there were some more ghostly encounters in the original version. Um, and again, this is a ghost story. So we're setting up that there's going to be supernatural stuff going on. Scrooge is already experiencing it. Um, but he's saying like, he, he's trying to counter it. He's trying to be very rational and say like, this couldn't be possible. Um, so Marley appears, he's like wrapped in chains and he's got like lock boxes and stuff weighing him down. And he says, Hey, if you don't change your ways and become less greedy, you're going to end up like me, um, and I am, like, suffering, uh, in the afterlife because, uh, I was a greedy little boy on Earth, um, and this is, and, and I refused to help people when they needed it, and so I'm being punished. Um, and he shows, he tells Scrooge that three spirits are going to visit him over three nights, and that, um, like, this is kind of going to be Scrooge's last chance. And then he shows Scrooge out the window. He can see, like, there's a bunch of spirits that all look like Marley. They're all weighed down by things or chained together. Um, and they're kind of roaming the, the streets at night, like, moaning, carrying on, being ghosts. Um, but desperately trying to help people on the street to get a chance of redemption. But they can't because they're ghosts and the people on the street can't see them. Um, so... 
again, the adaptations that I grew up with, I feel like didn't have this much ghost <laughs> content. Um, but this first part, Dickens is really, really driving home, like, that this is going to be one of the main ways that this story um, is told. Um, so, like I said, Scrooge is told that he's going to be visited by spirits over three nights, um, but he ends up waking up, and this all happens on Christmas Eve, right? So this is, Marley comes to visit him on Christmas Eve, so the next day will be Christmas, um, but he's told that it's going to last three nights, so it should end on the 27th, the spirits. However, at the end of the book, we see that uh, Scrooge wakes up on Christmas morning, and he exclaims, like, the spirits were able to do it all in one night. Um, so there's, like, you could look at it as, like, oh, it's just, like, magic, you know, happening, and, and that the, you know, the spirits are magic, um, or some people look at it as, like, time travel. Um, I think it's really interesting to think of it as, like, what if Scrooge actually missed three years? <laughs> and, like, each night he fast-forwarded through the year to Christmas Eve again, um, and so when he bursts out on Christmas morning, people are like, bro, you've been gone for, like, four years. <laughs> um, but I know that's probably not what's happening, um, but I still think it's interesting that it's, um, that there is this, like, kind of aspect of time travel, um, and of, like, and that that kind of becomes an important thing for Scrooge in the end, as he's able to say, like, oh, the spirits were able to do it in one night, um, and I, and I think it also kind of shows, like, you, you can be redeemed, um, quickly, right? Like, it didn't take three nights for Scrooge to change his ways, it, it took one night, you know, it still took three encounters, but it was able to happen more quickly, and, some people I've, I've read and some criticisms of it is like, it seems unbelievable that a man could change overnight. Um, but you know, Dickens isn't, isn't using like, it's not real time, right? Also it's a story. <laughs> um, but like the uh, Dickens, I think is wanting us to see like the impact of examining your life, right? Because most of what Scrooge sees is a reflection on his life and his actions and the way they impact the people around him. Um, and that that, Dickens is telling us that that can really change a lot about us. It can change our behavior, our worldview, um, and, you know, we, we as the audience don't need spirits to guide us through this journey. We can do a self-reflection on our own and stop and consider how our actions impact other people, um, and, and be able to have the same type of change or transformation as Scrooge does. So, even though it's like a very supernatural um, setup, I think Dickens is kind of saying, well, the magic ingredient here is self-reflection. I also wanted to point out here that um, m this story focuses on men. Most of the main characters are males or coded as male. There are a few female characters or women in the story, but they, you know, are not really, like, the central focus, um, and it makes sense that most of the story is written about male characters, it was written by a man in a very patriarchal society at a time when there wasn't a lot of women's rights, um, but as I've talked about before, right, cause sometimes it's important for us to acknowledge, like, maybe who is this story for, who was it written for, who's it written by, um, and how does that maybe miss some, some aspects, right? Um, and I think it's interesting that Scrooge, our main character, he doesn't have children, he doesn't have a partner, a romantic partner, you know, he is, he's kind of alone in the world, and it, I think it is difficult, in, in Dickens' worldview, it would be difficult to become so greedy when you don't have people, when you have people who rely on you, right? Like, a woman with children, or if Scrooge was a father, or married, it might be a little less difficult for him to hoard this, it might be, it might be a little more difficult for him to hoard all this wealth because there are people in his life that he needs to take care of. Um, and that having those people in his life would, um, you know, kind of center him and remind him what's important. And in fact, as we will see with the ghost, that Scrooge ends a lot of relationships or a lot of relationships are damaged by his pursuit of money. Um, and that may not be as true for another type of person, um, or in another time, right? But the, the, this story is very centered in, like, 1830s England and, and in the male experience. So that's just my little cultural caveat <laughs> for as we examine this, this tale. Um, okay, so 
that's that's the setup, right? We we find out that there's ghosts. Ghosts are coming for Scrooge, and Scrooge is a bad man. So then we move into part two, which is the Ghost of Christmas Past. Which in this book, he is dressed like a little, or he looks like a little boy with a little. His little head is glowing, but he has a hat on top of his head, so you can't fully see the glow. Um, I've seen representations where this ghost is just represented as like. I guess a more traditional looking ghost of like just a kind of an ethereal white figure, uh, kind of like flowy, fabricy. Um, in the Disney version, the this ghost does look like a a candle boy. Like the top of its body is um, looks like wax dripping, and then the head is like a flame. Again, played by Jim Carrey. <laughs> um, but yeah, anyway, th- this this spirit is supposed to be small and and glowing um, and. I think this is important because this is most likely um, the ghosts kind of map onto the developmental stage that they're showing Scrooge, and so th- this ghost is showing him the past, which is again him as a child, mostly him as a child. So, and as we go through the ghosts, you'll see that they like kind of progress in age to match where Scrooge's like developmental level is, um, either at the point he's being shown or um, like where he's being, where he kind of gets dropped off. So. First, they take Scrooge to his childhood at school. He's, like, in a boarding school. He's never allowed to come home for Christmas. He's supposed to spend most of them alone until they fast-forward through the years. And there's one year where Scrooge's sister, Fran, arrives and says, You're finally allowed to come home. Father has become much more kind, and he's going to allow you to come home. So this is most likely... A representation of how Dickens was not allowed to stop working when his dad got out of prison. This is like pretty autobiographical, this part. Um, and like I said, Fran, the sister, we see in this part that, that he feels very tender toward his sister. Um, she's younger than him. He seems to care for her a lot. Um, and so it is, I think it is most most likely the most reasonable explanation for why he's so mean to Fred is that he has not been able to properly grieve the death of his sister, and it is difficult for him to be around Fred without having grieved the loss of Fran. Um, so, uh, and, and I think that this memory, us, us as the audience seeing this memory with Scrooge, is to, to kind of remind us that, like, not everything that not everything that happens to you is directly your responsibility, right? Like, Scrooge is not responsible for what happened to him as a child. His dad, how his dad treated him isn't his fault. It's his it's his father's fault. Um, but it does contribute to how, like, Scrooge kind of end up on the path he's on. So I think this is a good reminder from Dickens that, you know, especially what happens to us in childhood, it's not our fault is 100% beyond our control, um, but still important to reflect on as it does influence how we get to where we are, right? And so, you know, in this moment, we see Scrooge learning how to be, like, withholding and how to, like, punish people um, by withholding emotional attention or or kindness, and that's exactly what his father did to him. Um, it fast-forwards a little bit, and we see Scrooge as a young man, kind of like a young adult, um, with his, his fiance Belle, and she is uh, having an argument with him and ends their, their engagement and tells him it's because he's too greedy. Like, he's too focused on work, he's, he's not focused on her. Um, and you can see how those two memories kind of connect, right? Of, like, Scrooge learned from it as a child that you work, you stay at school, um, you don't have time for emotions and feelings or love, and then as a young man, he's, like, still doing that. Now, I think Dickens would argue that Scrooge had had an opportunity as a young man to not do what his father did or do what his father taught him, but to change his ways, and he missed his opportunity there. Um, then, the so I thought this part was a little wild. We, we don't see this often in the adaptations, but the Ghost of Christmas Past then fast-forwards Scrooge through time to see Belle with her new husband, who loves Christmas. <laughs> um, and they're, like, in this home. It's full of light. It's full of love. And they're celebrating Christmas, and they're talking about Scrooge. And basically, Belle's new husband is like, well, he... You know, he's a grumpy old man. He really missed out. And Scrooge gets so mad by this. He's, like, infuriated. So he tries to pull the cap on the little spirit's head down to extinguish him. Um, and Scrooge is, like, thrown back into his bedroom. So we 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 don't see a whole lot. We don't see, like, every moment of 
Scrooge's life. Obviously, these ghosts are focused more on like his experience at Christmas time, but the ghost of Christmas past is showing him like ha- part of part of what happened to you was not your fault. But then also, you continue to make these choices into your adulthood, and you missed out on you know having a family, having a, a wife that that really cares for you. Um, and <laughs> I think it is kind of funny that's basically implied like if you weren't such a greedy old man, you would probably love Christmas. <laughs> like, the one thing keeping him from liking Christmas is that he's just, like, really greedy. Um, but also, it seems like a lot of traumatic things happen to Scrooge around Christmas time, right? Like, he's not allowed to come home, he gets dumped, um, around Christmas time, so you can also see how that contributes to kind of his heartening of his heart around Christmas. Um, so then, uh, the next ghost shows up, it's Christmas present, and this ghost is, like, a big guy in a big old robe, and he's, he's, actually appears in he doesn't appear in Scrooge's bedroom he appears in uh, the next room over and the room is like full 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 of food um and so this ghost is you know going to show Scrooge like what's going on in in current day again in the Disney version this ghost is also played by Jim Carrey (laughs) um first he takes him he takes Scrooge to Bob Cratchit's family feast so his employee and Scrooge sees that Cratchit has several children but his youngest son Tiny Tim has a serious illness, um, and it, it is very sick, and is the spirit tells Scrooge that Tiny Tim will die unless the course of events change. So, this, this also, I think, shows us that um, Scrooge, as an employer, is not interested in knowing anything about his employees, right? He doesn't, he didn't know that Bob Cratchit had this child, he didn't know that the child was sick, um, and you know, of course, like, is not understanding that the fact that he doesn't pay this man enough money is the reason, is one of the reasons why Tiny Tim will die, because they don't have enough money for, like, good food, to keep him healthy, access to, to doctors and medicine, um, and, like, you know, keeping the house warm enough, like, all of this stuff impacts Tiny Tim's ability to live, and I think Dickens really puts a lot into Tiny Tim. Tiny Tim kind of represents all of these, like, poor, broken children, um, and, and not the not necessarily the child labor part, but just like that that children are suffering because of these economic conditions. Um, and again, it's no fault of their own, but that there are these consequences trickle down to the youngest generation. Um, so Scrooge is like not having a great time seeing this, obviously. And then in the original version, in the book version, they go through this like little series of little scenes. So they see, uh, and they're all Christmas celebrations. So they go to a miner's cottage. Um, like mining ore, not a child's cottage. <laughs> um, although it could be a child miner. They go to a cottage, then they go to a lighthouse, and then they go to a ship at sea. And basically, it's like, listen, buddy, everywhere in the world, people are celebrating Christmas and having a good time. Like, it doesn't matter how isolated you are. It doesn't matter like what you do. People are celebrating Christmas and like able to find this like light and love and joy in the season. And then last, um, and I think often this part gets skipped the 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 little scenes get skipped in adaptations because it it kind of adds it's like just filler time um but i i i do think it's interesting that it was included in the original like scrooge didn't just see christmas present as in the people that he knows but he sees it as like kind of globally like the society is celebrating christmas and you can't be bothered to even understand why the people around you and the people who live in your country would be interested in this holiday um then Scrooge and the ghosts go to Fred's Fred's Christmas party, the one that Scrooge gets invited to every year, and he sees, this is where he sees a lot of the uh, traditions that Dickens kind of revitalizes, like the people are playing games, they're eating, they have like this big feast, drinking, hanging out, you know, music, light, um, and so we, we see that like this is kind of, this is kind of how Christmas is evolving, and this is, this is what Christmas looks like today. Um, and Throughout this scene, the ghost of Christmas present is aging, so by the end of um, his time with Scrooge, he, he looks like an old man. He's no longer um, like a young, robust man. Um, and again, in the original, this, this gr- Christmas present has a lot of extra stuff in it that we don't see a lot in modern adaptations, but at the end of Fred's party, before the spirit disappears, he like pulls back his robe, and underneath his robe are two starving children and their names are ignorance and want, and it's like, whoa, Dickens, you're going hard. <laughs> uh, and and Scrooge is like, oh my gosh, like, 
we have to help these children and the spirit makes fun of him and is like why are you all of a sudden so concerned about these children when you couldn't care less about like other children like other poor children when you're told about them and basically tells scrooge like be be scared of ignorance and want and I think that is, those are kind of the the things that Dickens is pointing out as, like, Scrooge's biggest failings, right? It's like, he's ignorant of the stuff that is going on around him, um, and it is essentially ignorance of, like, the, the want that people have, right? Additionally, Scrooge's wants have outweighed people's needs, right? His want to hoard money has overshadowed shadowed Cratchit's need for money to support his family, like, um, so, so those children represent things that I think are kind of plaguing the society, but also are specifically like Scrooge's downfalling. Um, and these children under the robe are most likely to represent Dickens, uh, like opinions about child labor, right? Of like, these are sickly exploited children. And Charles Dickens is putting them in this story to say like, this is wrong and we need to stop like, you should be shocked by these, like, horribly skinny, upsetting-looking children, and, and we need to do whatever we can to stop them. Uh, and and it's it's shown in the, the book version that, um, Charles, not Charles Dickens, <laughs> Scrooge is, like, very shaken by seeing these children. So we can see that through the progression of him being with the Ghost of Christmas Present, he is really starting to take things to heart and he's becoming more impacted by them, right? Because remember, at the end of Christmas past, he gets angry and he acts out against the spirit. But at the end of Christmas present, he is like weeping and asking like, how can he help these children? So the transformation has begun by the end of his time with the ghost of Christmas present. So that means next is the fourth stave or chapter, uh, the Christmas, the ghost of Christmas yet to come. So Again, Scrooge is ready for this. He's already, like, ready to change his ways, but he knows he needs to get through the last ghost. This ghost appears, it's basically, it's basically just a robe. <laughs> like, it's like, it looks like what we would classically assume to be the Grim Reaper. Like, black hooded robe. He can't see the phantom's face. Um, and it does not speak to Scrooge or really interact with him anyway, but he is observed to be, like, groveling and begging that the spirit to, like, help him. So he is speaking to the spirit, but it's not speaking back. Um, so he's this spirit starts off by taking Scrooge to a bunch of little scenes. So they go to the stock exchange, the London Stock Exchange, and a pawn shop, and at all of these places, people are talking about some dead rich man, right? They never say his name, but they're talking about, like, oh, this guy's dead, like, good riddance. He was so greedy. He was a miser. The pawn shop, people are, like, they, like, kind of looted his house and are trying to make money off of the stuff they stole. Um, and then Scrooge is taken to see the Cratchit family and see that Tiny Tim has in fact died, um, and that the family is grieving and trying to make it through a Christmas without Tiny Tim. Um, and then eventually Scrooge is shown a gravestone with his own name on it, and he realizes that the rich rich man that all of those people were talking about was in fact him. So this is the only scene in the book, or I guess the only spirit where there's no lightness to Christmas. So Dickens is basically saying like if Scrooge cannot change his way, like Christmas will be ruined. <laughs> right? That there's like that like Scrooge will succeed in his mission to like squeeze the the light and love and like goodness out of people and like squeeze that out of them for profit and that all that is left is like the shell of a family and that no one will care that Scrooge is dead. And in fact, they will, they might celebrate his death or be, you know, at the very bare minimum unbothered by his death because it just means they get to take his resources. So if we continue down this idea of thinking that Dickens is trying to refute Malthusian economics, right? Um, Dickens is saying to the people who believe in this, this worldview or this economic position, like, this is what will happen to you, right? You're going to sit and hoard your resources because you thought that the poor were too undeserving or that they couldn't handle enough money or what, you know, whatever you thought to justify your hoarding, um, upon your death, your assets will be divided up, will be distributed to the poor that you, you know, loathe so much and, and no one will care, right? No one will have any goodwill towards you now that you're dead. And, you know, it's, it's harsh and it's grim. Um, but I think this, this 
spirit and this chapter in particular really speaks to how passionately Charles Dickens felt about this and how, um, like, life or death he saw this issue. Um, and so I think that it is, I think that it is really fitting um, that he included this this chapter and that Scrooge's transformation is cannot be complete without this encounter, right? Scrooge is basically on the brink of his transformation, um, but until he sees the consequences, and not just being visited by Marley, but seeing how the consequences would impact his life and legacy, um, that's kind of like the driving nail home into Scrooge's transformation. So it's revealed that he is the dead man that everyone's been talking about. Scrooge like falls to the ground sobbing. He's like clutching at the spirit, like begging for forgiveness essentially. And then the spirit, the spirit disappears and like crumples to the ground in like a pile of robes. Um, and Scrooge wakes up. So this is the fifth and final section. This is kind of the wrap up. He wakes up and it is Christmas morning. So woohoo, the spirits did it <laughs> in less than three days. Um, he starts running around the town. He gives money to charity. He, he actually goes to Fred's Christmas party and kind of reconciles with his nephew. Um, and then he sits down and tells Cratchit he will get a raise. So I forgot to mention this, but in the fir very first section, um, Cratchit, Bob Cratchit asks for Christmas Day off, and Scrooge begrudgingly gives it to him, um, and but tells him you need to come in early the next day. So this actual interaction with Cratchit doesn't happen until the 26th, the day after Christmas, where Scrooge is like sitting in the office waiting for Cratchit. Cratchit comes in, and Scrooge starts berating him for like, you're 18 minutes late, like, what am I paying you for, blah, 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 like, basically still acting this role of like, cranky, old, greedy man. Um, and after, basically he's pulling a Michael Scott, right? He's like doing the fake firing because he thinks it's so funny. Um, so he's berating Cratchit and then he's like, LOL, JK, um, I'm a better person. I'm actually going to give you a raise and like, I want to support your family. And he's like, um, the room is warm. He's like paid for fire. There's food. He's like, you know, he's being very generous all of a sudden. Um, and so then there's sort of like a summary little conclusion thing that says like as time went on Scrooge maintained this behavior change like he continued to be generous and he actually ends up becoming a second father figure for Tiny Tim and becomes like a part of the family. Now interestingly enough in this original version um, Scrooge does not go to the Cratchit home on Christmas. He doesn't become involved with their family until like later on. Basically Dickens is saying like he had to Scrooge has to show he made a change, like a permanent change for him to be welcomed into this family, you know, with a sick child. Um, but because he's able to maintain the change and, you know, continue to participate in supporting the family, Tiny Tim is able to live, right? Like he's able to get the nutrients and medicine that he needs. Um, and in a lot of the adaptations, this is kind of all rushed together. And so the, one of the final scenes you usually see is Scrooge at the Cratchit family, like, family home spending Christmas with them. Um, but Dickens, the, I think the reason it ends the way it does in the original, in the, in the novella, is that Dickens is wanting to show, like, hey, um, this behavior, like, doesn't just happen on Christmas and then it goes away. Like, Scrooge had to keep this up. Um, but the consequences and or the benefits of him keeping it up are that, like, this boy gets to live and he's well-loved. And then Scrooge gets to develop a family, right? Like, he may be too old to have a child of his own, but he's able to, like, participate in this family in, in, in a loving way. Um, and so that is that for A Christmas Carol. Um, overall, I, th I, I found it so interesting that at its core, it truly is a ghost story, and it truly is, like, a political, um, it's not a pamphlet, but like it's a it's a political story. It has it has a very serious political message, um, and I think it is communicated well. I think maybe sometimes, uh, especially in our American culture of like consuming and <laughs> distancing ourselves from original sources, <laughs> um, we kind of lose that message in the way that we interact with the Christmas Carol, um, and and it becomes it becomes very individualized, right? It's just about Scrooge's like personal changes or personal development and journey. Um, but the reality is, is that this is, this is a warning to, to each of us as individuals, but also to us as societies, right? That if our society 
becomes one where power is consolidated, wealth is consolidated within only a few people or a few institutions, um, and we buy into this lie that there's nothing to be done for the poor, the poor are not deserving of money, resources, care, um, then our societies will be doomed, much in the way that Marley was doomed um, in the afterlife. And so I, I, I think it's important for, for me to kind of remember this message and to share it with you that at the heart of this Christmas story that we hear every year that is so ingrained into our, our pop culture, into our, you know, cultural milieu, if you will, um, that the heart of this message is that there is no excuse <laughs> um, for hoarding resources, right? That there is no reason to hoard resources and that when we hoard resources, um, we do immeasurable damage on those around us and on, on, on the, the most underserved or, or the less seen in our society. Um, and that it doesn't mean that you can't, like, have fun at Christmas, right? Like, part of it is that Scrooge learns how to, like, spend his money on things like a Christmas turkey and, like, going to a Christmas party. Like, you can have fun and enjoy the good, exciting, consumerist parts of Christmas, but the the flip side of that is that you can't then hoard your wealth and sit on top of your wealth in the pursuit of those things, right? You have to do both at the same time. Enjoy the, like, material goods about of Christmas, but also, like, in, contribute to the material well-being of other people. Um, and particularly if, if, like, you know, this is a story about someone who owns a business, right? <laughs> like, to be stingy with the wages that you give to someone has, like, actual consequences in their lives. So I know this isn't very psychological, but it's just my, like, political stance here. But... Um, I think it's important to also see that um, Scrooge has a psychological transformation throughout the story as well, right? He becomes less, like, difficult to be around. He becomes, he has a better mood, and he, he feels better about himself. He's able to have a better, like, self-worth and self-identity at the end of the story than he did at the beginning. Um, and he's able to kind of break down the walls he's built up between himself and the guilt he feels about his sister dying his engagement breaking off, like, all these things in his life, or his, you know, his father, all these things that he's kind of built this, like, crusty demeanor around, um, he, it meant nothing got in to hurt him, but also meant that he wasn't ever able to deal with these things or be touched by anyone outside of his, his defenses, right? So, on one hand, the story is about, like, a political message of, like, not hoarding wealth and treating the poor with dignity, but it's also a message about letting people in, right, and and allowing yourself to be vulnerable, allowing yourself to be loved by other people, to be cared for um, in a way that is very difficult when you've been hurt in the past, um, but that ultimately it benefits you to be cared for by other people. So, with that, that is my Christmas message <laughs> to all my listeners of, you know, be generous, be, be generous through resources, um, and, and with your, um, relationships, right? Allow people in, allow people to see who you are, um, to help you to heal. Um, and I hope that for everyone, whether you celebrate Christmas or not, whether you're just getting a little break this weekend, um, or going to be eating like 800 Christmas cookies like I intend to do, um, I hope that it's a wonderful weekend, um, and that your year has been wrapping up really well. Um, and I really appreciate everyone who's been listening and, and sticking around, um, through my, ups and downs in my scheduling <laughs> and being able to put out content. Um, but I do appreciate every single person who listens. Um, and I hope to hear from you. You can email me at psychmindedpod at gmail.com or follow me on Twitter. Um, and with that, I just want to say thank you for listening and I'll see you in the next episode. Bye-bye. To see the sources and resources mentioned in the episode, visit psychologicallymindedpod.com or click the link in the show notes. To contact me with any questions or comments about this topic or upcoming episodes, email me at psychmindedpod at gmail.com. Please rate and review on Apple Podcasts and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you and see you in the next episode.